Welcome to the Next in Q podcast, a not so safe space for all kinds of news, views, and dialogue. Brought to you by Quilliam International. And welcome back to Next in Q. In the first part, we discussed a conversation with Tanya Joya um, on the background of her experience uh, in and out of extremism. Um, we talked a bit more about the context of conservative upbringing, particularly in the United Kingdom, her journey to the United States. And we left off with a conversation um, where Tanya had mentioned about the parole. Um, her ex-husband had just got off um, of parole um, in roughly 2011, and they were considering journeying to Egypt. So, Tanya, uh, perhaps you can pick up from there, and then we'll dive into a list of other questions um, for this episode. Okay, so we lived in Al-Rehab City. In, it's just outside of Cairo. It's a really nice area. It's a gated city, and President Mubarak's son built the city, and a lot of Muslim Brotherhood families lived there. My, my friends at the time were Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood families and expats, usually from the Ukraine. And there were Salafi families, especially from Europe, but I used to stay away from them because they were so judgmental and harsh on me because I, I wouldn't wear the jilbab. I would only wear a hijab and I would wear loose pants and a tunic. I was, so I just avoided them because we would always clash. And the Muslim Brotherhood women, they were really nice because they weren't very, they weren't too religious. They, they looked very moderate and they were moderate. They, they had, been to Catholic private schools and they spoke fluent English and French. So I, I just sort of loved hanging around them because they were very sophisticated women. But John was very unhappy with that, of course. And he didn't like it that I wasn't with the more rigid Salafis who, even though we were both Zahari, John and I, and we were more moderate than the Salafis, his following in Egypt and his friends, his circle were hardcore Salafis and they liked John. The only thing that brought John as a Zahari and the Salafis together was the concept of jihad. Because otherwise Salafis think Zahris are, are heretics because they believe that God has a, as a body and is physical. And Zahri's believe God is time, and then that's a different philosophy we could go on about. So um, John wasn't happy living in Al-Rehab City. It was very expensive to live there, and he was unhappy with how things were going with our marriage. So he decided to take me to Mercy Matru, which is three hours away from Libya and three hours between – it's between – Alexandria City and Libya, and it's on the north coast by the Mediterranean Sea. And again, he had to bribe me. He was like, I'm going to get you a five-bedroom house, three-bedroom bathroom. It's a villa by the Mediterranean Sea. You're going to love it there because the kids can swim. And he made it sound nice, but then when I asked my friends, our friends, John's friends and my friends, they're like, John's going to love it, but your wife's going to hate it, so don't take her there. They, they warned John not to take me there because they thought I'd have a mental breakdown. 
but he still took me because we, we were fighting at the time. Our marriage had become very abusive. He was hitting me in front of the kids a lot and it was getting so bad. So he, we had to, he, he stopped paying the rent in rehab city and then he moved us out to Mercy Matru. And when I got there, I just bursted out crying because I was like, Oh my God, you brought me to like a place that's like Afghanistan. It's, it was so primitive. It, it was like, I felt like I was in the wild west. I was surrounded by nomadic people and a billboard pictures of Osama bin Laden and the electricity only worked for like half the day. And it was like, Oh, it was just traumatic. <laughs> Hated it. But I did get my villa by the Mediterranean Sea. That was nice. But. The weather was cold, so we couldn't swim or anything. It was freezing cold. And then, you know, he always promised me with maids because I like having maids and nannies, but we couldn't even find a maid that could clean properly in, in Machu or this. Like they came over to my house and I made it worse. So I had to teach them how to clean. Um, so anyway, that was really frustrating and I couldn't make friends where I was because they were all super religious and they always criticized John for being married to me because I wasn't a full-on practicing Muslim. I was practicing, but in their eyes, I wasn't a good enough Muslim because of the way I dressed. And then a lot of John's following were going to Syria to fight. Uh, you know, they wanted to help the Syrian Muslims against Bashar's soldiers. Also, there were a lot of um, prophecies saying that there will be an army in Al-Ghuta and uh, Jesus will return as the Messiah and lead this army to fight the bad infidels and and then go after all the Jewish people. <laughs> Just terrible story. Very anti-Semitic. Um, so you know, John's he always had an obsession with Jesus uh, since you know because he came from a Orthodox Christian background and then he revered Jesus as a Muslim and. Uh, as a Muslim growing up as, you know, from Muslim background, I didn't care as much as he did about Jesus. Um, I thought it was interesting, like during when I first could, became very Islamic practicing, I was obsessed with the apocalypse, but we all go through that phase and then, you know, we grow out of it. But I don't know, in the Muslim world, every day is going to, next week is going to be the day of judgment. And that, that's one of the biggest problems I found is, is that, I was like, Muslims just live to die. They just live, they just live for the end of the world. But then I could see scientists like Bill Nye, the science guy. It's funny. My story about that is really funny. Um, and then other scientists who were living to preserve life and, uh, you know, enrich people's lives. And so I was in conflict with that. But okay. So let me tell you the story about Bill Nye, the science guy. I was homeschooling my kids in Egypt because we wouldn't dare send them to a public school because public schools in Egypt are like sending your kid to the zoo. And then they like the teachers will bite you and um, they'll hit you, of course. And then in the pub, but the private schools are even worse. And it, and it just works through bribery, parents bribing bribing the schools to get their children to get the grades. And then these kids grow up and be the leaders of Egypt. And no wonder it's such a broken country. Anyway, that's my two cents about that. So, um, Bill Nye, science guy. So I was homeschooling my kids and I was saying to John, I was like, how am I going to teach my kids science? I, I got, I flunked in science and he was like, Oh, I'll just show them Bill Nye, the science guy videos and you can go from there. So he streamed it all off some blacklist website and then 
we had the whole series and that was the first time I learned science properly and it was fun. It wasn't boring like high school. Um, so, you know, I learned so much with my kids about science and that, you know, made me more curious. And then I started listening to, um, Neil deGrasse and, um, Sam, or not Sam Harris, Sam Harris come, came way loose with it. You know, other scientists uh, just, it opened my mind. It made me less afraid of evolution because as a teenager, I don't know why I thought evolution was a, was a racist idea. <laughs> I don't, don't even ask me, but I was like, and, but then I was like such an idealist because I was like, Islam's going to solve all the problems in the world when I was young. I was like, it's going to get rid of racism and it's going to get rid of class divide and all this stuff. We're all going to be brothers. And then, you know, when you're involved, you realize you can't do anything about it. It's just there. Racism's going to just, you can't get it out of these people who just don't know any better. And even Islam itself is a racist religion. Muhammad preferred white slaves to darker skinned slaves. And, and, and then, you know, you got to kill these black dogs who've done nothing. And you know, it's terrible. So Ta- Tanya, this is interesting because what I hear you saying is there's this interesting kind of conversation between modernity and then also sort of this religious conservatism, because yourself and John are discussing, hey, we need the practical discussion of how do we raise our children? And uh, like any other parent, limited understanding on all topics to create well-balanced, holistic children, um, and then giving them religious study, education. And so it sounds like sort of this push-pull, and you're teaching them via uh, videos that you've live streamed or downloaded, um, from the West, in this case, America. Um, yet what I'm hearing is sort of John also having obviously critique of the American and Western system as well. Am I right on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. And he, he heard a lot from me since he, I was always busy being pregnant, barefoot in the kitchen, cooking nonstop and sad to say, but I had help sometimes. And then, um, and he was always online debating and he, there was one website. It was a Facebook discussion group about politics. It was called Vox Populi and he would talk all the time to Americans and they would debate about evolution and talk about, um, being homosexual. And so he understood the argument a lot better than I did. And I was completely homophobic because the only thing I ever knew about gays was from the Quran. I, since I didn't ever mix with one I, I, in my life, like not that I was aware of, because I stayed away from men in general. But John understood it, and he kept it from me. Like, and it, and that's what made me so mad later, because I knew that he was hearing the logical arguments online, and he he would say things like, "Okay, so I'm going to go off topic." We, once we. John and I took this test, a political test, seeing which party we belong to. And when John took the, took the test, he got libertarian because he said that being homosexual is natural. And then I took the test and I said it was unnatural. Um, and I became a, repu- a conservative, which really made me mad because I was like, no, I'm a libertarian. It's only this. That was the only question we answered differently. And the truth is, is that I didn't know anything about it. And I, I was like, well, if God, if it's natural, why would God make it haram? You know, like, of course that can't be the case. And, but John's view was it's haram and it's natural. It's natural. And it's just something that men have to suppress. Um, so, and I, I just, 
you know, it wasn't later until I came to America and I met a lot of gay people. I realized they're just humans like I am and I like them. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Anyway. That's a fascinating conversation that uh, was potentially another episode on because I think, uh, you know, I think within Islam and I think broader conversation of uh, homosexuality is certainly one that we could unpack, uh, particularly in a Western context and in a broader Muslim world. But just to get back on what we've been talking about, particularly, uh, so the conversation amongst John's peers was potentially traveling to Syria. Yes. Perhaps you can, again, engage on that. Yes, um, absolutely. Because this is this is a really interesting um, development just in terms of helping the, the listener understand uh, the development uh, leaving America, coming to Egypt, and then the next phase of traveling to Syria. So Syria was something that I, we knew was Fard. It was something, it was Jihad or Fard or Jihad, I can't remember the terms, Jihad line or Fard or something like that. So we had to, we just knew that we had to do it. It, it was something that's that we have to do. We can't like die knowing that we didn't do anything to help our, our Muslim brothers and sisters while they're being oppressed and suffering. And so I was like, John, I don't mind. You can go fight your jihad when you're 40 years old because my kid, my eldest one would be 20 and or 19 or something. And I'd be like, I don't need you anyway. You know, just let my kids grow up and you can go die. And so, we, so clearly we didn't have a good marriage, right? We didn't, we barely liked each other. And then so, uh, he was, he agreed to me with, he agreed with that. He said he would wait until I wasn't so, so and while the kids weren't so dependent on me. But then he just went back on everything he said, like he usually do, would do. So, um, we were thinking about going to Sudan, to Khartoum to go live there because in Egypt in 2013, the military coup happened and Morsi was imprisoned. And that meant that Egypt became very xenophobic and was just rounding up people and questioning them if they were foreigners. And so we, we became afraid to live there because it just... All of our friends were leaving. All of them were going back to the Ukraine or to Europe. And so we didn't know what to do. And we asked John's dad, we, that we told him, we need money to leave. And so help us. And I, John's dad was like, well, I'm not going to pay for you to go to Sudan to, you know, cause John was offered a job there to work at a, at a college to teach English or Arabic or something. And, and the other option was the Philippines because John had made very good friends with someone called Musa Sarantonio. It's an Italian name, so it's Charantonio, but I can't always pronounce that. So it's Sarantonio. And he was a very popular, like he was like a pop star Muslim. He had, he had a show, he had a couple of shows, I think, in Egypt until one day he got beaten up on live TV by the crew because he mentioned a caliphate and everybody in the studio were telling him to shut up, but he wouldn't. And then they just, started being they attacked him which was it just shows how afraid they were to discuss caliphate in egypt on on television it was like on a channel called ikra or something and um so uh, musa 
became one of John's students. And he was very interested in Zahi Thik. He was previously a Salafi, but then he became very interested in Ibn Hazm and Zahi Thik school of thought. And um, then he brought all of his following, his Australian friends who are all radicals, and told them to start listening to John. Oh, yeah. So Musa was telling us to go to fit the Philippines. And, you know, the Philippines is a place where they have like the Sulu Islands, which is a Al-Qaeda training camp and stuff. I didn't realize this until later. But he was trying to convince us to move there to Mindanao because there was a whole rebellion uprising that was he was all excited about. But then the Australian police wanted him in custody and he became a fugitive. And then right before we were going to go to the Philippines, he ran off to Malaysia and then he was arrested there. But so we didn't end up going to the Philippines or to Sudan. And John's dad, uh, I wanted to go to Greece. I wanted to go to Crete because that's where John's family are originally from. But then his parents told us that, no, you're Joya, they're not going to like you because you wear a hijab and they're going to call you a refugee or they're going to call you like a, um, a gypsy. And and I was like, well, I don't want to wear the hijab, but John wouldn't allow that. So they agreed Turkey. So John's dad gave us the money to move to Turkey. And once we were there, um, you know, I liked the West side. I liked the European side of Istanbul. I didn't like the East side, the Asian side of, of um, Turkey. And John said we had to go live there because he wasn't prepared to learn Turkish fluently because he hasn't got the time. And see, while we were in Egypt, John was translating for a, the Ministry of Endowment of the government of Qatar. So what that's about is there's Qatar has muftis who make all these ridiculous laws and then he translates them into English and puts it on the website. That was his job. And... Um, so he was like, look, I haven't got time for this. We're going to move somewhere where there's a lot of Syrians and Arabs so that I can just speak Arabic around and, you know, you can send the kids to school and that's fine. So that was, that was the plan. And I was like, fine. Okay. Um, but it became very difficult to find a place to stay. At first we were going to go to Iskandarun and then we were to Alexandra and we were advised not to go there because it's not good for Muslim families. And then we ended up in Gaziantep and I had, we had no plans to even go to Gaziantep and I didn't like it there. I was like, it was, you know, I was suffering from culture shock big time. And I was like, John, there are way too many Syrian refugees. I'm not comfortable here. It, it, it was just so different from, and, you know, of course I was missing my home and my furniture and everything that we had left behind in Egypt. And John was like, just telling me to stop complaining all the time. But one day we, we ended up not having anywhere to stay because it was, it was really late. We didn't have money wired to us from Egypt that we were expecting. And the hotels were booked. They were full of Syrian refugees and the rented housing were all full or we couldn't afford them. So we ended up, John ended up taking me to a Syrian hostel and I refused to stay in there. I was like, I don't know. I, because my kids and I all suffer from bed bugs. You know, we all allergies to bed bugs. So I, I'm not going to just sleep anywhere. And I just, it was like hurting my pride and I wouldn't do it. And I was, we were on the streets and it was like two o'clock in the morning and I'm, pregnant five months pregnant and i have three small children eight four and one and a half with me 
and then we got a friend with us, Lisa Marie Smith, who just got arrested like a week ago in the Kurdish prison. She's Irish. And we're all there outside in the streets. And then John's there. And, and then a bus drives up outside the Syrian hostel to drop people off. And then John started talking to the driver. And then John told us, the driver said, we can sit on the bus so you can sleep. And he has somewhere where we can go. And I was too tired at that point to argue with him. And I was just quite happy to sit down on a bus and fall asleep. So we got on there. And then eventually, like after some time, I saw a sign saying, welcome in Syria. And then I realized we were at the checkpoint at the border. And I was so afraid and like in shock. I was like, it was a roller coaster of emotions and just despair and I was furious with John, but I also wasn't in the custom of breaking down in front of people. So I was trying to keep myself together. I wasn't talking to him. I was so mad. And then John said, it's it's not permanent. It's only until I can get more money wired to me and we'll find a place in Turkey to live. So I was like, okay, I can handle one week. <laughs> and then that's the most and we've got to go. And he was like, give me two weeks. And then it ended up being three weeks. And um, I would have left earlier. We were in Azaz and I would have left as soon as possible, but there was a lot of infighting between the Free Syrian Army and then the Islamic militia groups. They were, and they were made up of like Tunisians, Syrians and, oh, Bosnians, a lot of Bosnians. And they were really mean Bosnians. Um, and so once the border was open and we were told those we could leave, that was three weeks after getting there, John wouldn't come back with me because I what I did I as soon as I got to Syria I reported him to to the authorities I called his mom and I said John brought us to Syria you need to report it to the FBI or to the authorities just tell them what he's done to us and I I was really scared and I, I said and then John's mom was like I don't know how I'm gonna get you back here what has he done and he wouldn't talk to his mother on the phone even though he was watching me talk to her and I just said listen if I don't get out of here you're not going to just have one American terrorist. You're not going to just have John on your, being a problem. You're going to end up having four Americans, my sons, being put, you know, in danger and their dad's going to make them terrorists. You know, I was just willing to say anything for help at the time. And so they told me that I had to cross the border because no one could come and help me, in, you know, from Syria. So I had to cross the border back into Turkey and then fly back to the UK and from the UK come back to the US and then of course divulge all the information I have so which I was completely happy about doing because as long as I could get out and survive with my children I was willing to do anything to do that so and and, and I luckily John let me leave but I wanted John to take me back to the Turkish airport but he was like no there's probably going to be someone there waiting to arrest me so I'm not going to take you to the airport. So Tanya this is fascinating. And I know we have limited time and potentially we might have to do a third episode for this. But what I would love for you to be able to help the listener understand, John allowing you and your children to leave, it sounds like such an interesting moment after all the difficulties that you were struggling with. And again, you know, domestic abuse, the wrestling through conflict, internal conflict of uh, thoughts and ideas you depart from John, you and your children. Um, and was that the, that departure, was that the last time you saw John? Yes, in person. Mm. I saw him a few times on Skype, but mm -hmm. that ended very quickly. 
And so you left um, and you went to Istanbul. You flew out and you went where? So from Gaziantep Airport, I went to Istanbul Airport and then I stayed in the Radisson Hotel by the airport. And I was too sick, so I I had a lot of health problems. I nearly had a miscarriage because of the dehydration when kids were sick. And um, my in-laws called my family in the UK and asked them to help me. And they said no. (laughs) They said they wouldn't help me at first because we, you know, we had never got along. And my mother-in-law was pleading with them and then uh, my sister Tazneem she's two years older than me um she knew my mother-in-law so she was like okay I'll, I'll do it I'll do it for you so um Tazneem came over to Istanbul and my of course my father-in-law paid for all the flight tickets and hotels and he paid for everything um for me to escape Syria and come back to the U.S. um I was back in the UK for about two weeks and I wasn't wearing hijab at this point. As soon as I got into Turkey, I ripped my hijab off. I was, and I laughed with, out of happiness. So I was jumping for joy. I was just so happy. One of the happiest moments of my life is to get away from John, to take off the hijab. And I stopped praying too because I was like, there's no one to force me anymore. So I was in England. I was in London barking again for two weeks. And it was amazing how much it had changed from when I was there. Everyone was like Islamic practicing. And I, I'd, I'd done the reverse. It was really strange. And then um, I was there for two weeks and then I came back to Texas. And so, Tanya, let me ask you two questions. One, what it sounds like your ex-husband's parents were very helpful. Um, what's your relationship like f- with them now? And they seem to, even through difficult times, be a very steady rock, despite this very sort of tumultuous time period for not just you, but your children as well. What's your relationship like with them even now? I love my mother-in-law and I did love my father-in-law. I loved them more than my own parents because they were, especially my mother-in-law, she was always so loving and she was always a very practicing Christian and she always had a good Christian heart, like and reminding people to be that way, compassionate and having mercy. And that was ideas I was never raised with. And my family was all about yelling, screaming, and I don't know, punishment and, <laughs> and vengeance. But it was so different meeting John's family. And they had the money to help, which was a, a great blessing. And, and they have all that wealth because of their own hard work and doing well in America. So, yeah, I mean, my father-in-law is difficult. He's a very standoffish, he's a colonel. So I understand why he's a proud man. He's He's done so much and knows a lot, but he never knew his son very well. And, and I, I knew, you know, I knew John better than him. It's funny because I knew John's dad better than John did. And I knew John better than his dad knew him. So it was, it was complicated, but he, John, I mean, John's dad, my father-in-law, Mike's father-in-law is a great grandfather he I mean he's fabulous with the kids he loves them the, the both of them do so much for the kids and i'm so grateful that the two of them looking after my kids is better than what i could do alone as a single mother mm. i would be suffocating and drowning i mean i didn't even have reproductive rights and that's something i don't mind talking about i didn't have reproductive rights as a um, as john's wife or you know he thought it, contraception was haram and he used 
making me pregnant as a way to subdue me further whenever I wanted my independence. And he knew that the best way to do that was keeping me occupied with another child and burdening me with that. Um, and, and so, you know, I really needed to, I, I mean, at first it was really hard for me to, you know, I share custody with my, with the grandparents. And that was really, really difficult for me because, you know, life was nothing like how I pictured it would be. But I learned that it's for the best. I mean, my children are Christian. They're Orthodox Christian. They were baptized. I'm an atheist. And I wasn't too keen about that first, but I was like, whatever, as long as they're having fun and they're not hurting anybody, it's fine that maybe they'll, once they grow up, they'll think more freely. Two other questions. The day when you found out that John was killed um, or um, died or passed away, however you want to frame it, how how did you mm-hmm. receive that information? Okay, so I'm not certain. Again, it's really hard to tell if he's dead because there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. Like I do speak to Graham Wood occasionally sure. and... He did point that out to me that there is no, it's just hearsay and it's from people that we don't even know we can trust. Mm -hmm. But it was, um, Rukmani Kalimachi, Mm -hmm. the reporter from New York Times. She had put a post about it in her thread and then she had blocked me so that I couldn't see it, which I thought was really unfair. Like I don't remember offending her, but I don't remember even talking to her. I liked her. I really respected her journalism, but she didn't want me to see it clearly. So, I, you know, that was shocking for me, but it's also a relief when I, whenever I hear he's dead, I'm always like sad because I always wanted to convince him that Islam isn't true and it's just a, you know, we're all exploited by this religion. I, I've always wanted that opportunity, but at the same time, I was like, I, as long as he's not in my children's lives, I'm fine, you know, even if it means he's in the grave, it's fine with me. And Tanya, you know, this is a really good conversation as it relates to, you know, the work with Quilliam in particular. We we recognize that there are, uh, and we, our work is largely broader on counter-extremism, and we are pro, uh, working to promote pluralism in its broadest sense, but we are certainly working with within the tradition of Islam, but we also welcome other voices who are not, uh, who are ex-Muslims and other voices who are out there who, uh, you know, religion is not their pathway in life. Um, it sounds mm-hmm. like from what you said um, that the state that you are in now, um, how would you identify yourself? A humanist. Mm. I love humanism. It makes me optimistic about humans. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't serve, I'm not a slave or a servant to God anymore. I serve humanity. At least I'm trying. Um that's my purpose in life now. Absolutely. Tanya, thank you so much for your time. Um, there's a whole list of more questions certainly we could engage in, but your work is <clears throat> in the efforts that you're doing, not just in the United States, but globally to help combat extremism and trying to tell your story um, is so influential, so important. And we thank you for your time. You're welcome. With that, we uh, hope that you all can join us in the next episode of Next in Q. You've been listening to the Next in Q podcast, brought to you by Quilliam International, the civil society movement challenging extremism. Please support our work by becoming a member of Quilliam Circle at quilliaminternational.com forward slash circle. Tune in next time to see what's next in Q.